During the welcome, I did fail to uh, introduce to you a long-anticipated visitor. We're very happy to welcome Isaiah and Jameson here this morning. Isaiah is our brand new youth minister. Actually, he's not brand new. We couldn't afford a new one, so we got a used one. Uh, he's served in a couple of churches before, and we're very excited to have him here tonight at the family meeting. You'll have a chance to hear from him. And then, obviously, at the fellowship, a chance to introduce yourself to him if you haven't already done so. But welcome, brother. We're glad you're here. Romans chapter 3. We've been in chapter 3 for a bit now. We're going to run through the uh, verse 24 today. We're not going to finish the chapter. We'll go through verse 24. So we'll begin in verse 21. These are the same verses that we read last week. So Romans chapter 3, starting in verse 21, going through verse 24. But now, the righteousness of God has been manifest, uh, manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through, through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. We'll stop there for today. Now, last week, we began our look at this passage, and we began our look also at some main truths that the, the verses are going to point out to us all the way through the end of verse 31. We looked at four of them, or five, rather, and these are on the back of your worship guide if, you're, if this is the first week you've uh, been here for these passages. We just listed them there for you so you don't have to write them all down if you're a note taker. So let's run over those very briefly. Number one, God has provided a righteousness of his own for men and women, a righteousness that we do not possess in and of ourselves. And we looked at that last week as we covered verse 21, where it says the righteousness of God has been manifested to us. Number two, this righteousness is by grace. We'll look at that concept today. It is the work of Jesus in dying for his people, redeeming them, we'll look at that today, from their sin that has made this grace on God's part possible. And then number four, the righteousness that God has graciously provided becomes ours through simple faith. We'll talk about faith today. Number five, believing and trusting God in regard to the work of Jesus is the only way anyone, whether Jew or Gentile, can be saved. So those five principles really sort of outline the gospel, and they're covered in these verses all the way through the end of the chapter, verse 31. So we looked at the first principle last week. We're going to just kind of hit the others as they come in the verses to follow. And they sort of begin to run together, as you'll see. Verse 22, however, which we'll start with today, speaks very clearly to principle number four. So let's read verse 22 again together. It says, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. It's kind of odd taking these a verse at a time because it's one long sentence, one long thought. So when you, you take them apart, it doesn't form a complete thought or a complete sentence as you see here. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. So first thing Paul does is he repeats that this righteousness is of God. You'll see that in the previous verse, verse 21. So he's just reminding us that this is not the relative or imperfect righteousness 
of human achievement. It is the righteousness from God. We then learn that this justification, this righteousness of God is through faith, which is what the English Standard Version says that we just read. And the New American Standard says that also. The King James, it's interesting, uses by faith, but when they wrote the New King James Version, they went back to through faith. So we're not going to quibble about any difference. Those words may mean they're very similar. Instead, we're going to talk about faith. I mean, faith is one of the themes that you find throughout Paul's epistle here. In chapter 4, where we're going to spend a lot of time talking about Abraham, he says in verse 13 that the promise to Abraham and his offspring that he would be heir of the world did not come through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. And then in chapter 5, verse 1, a very well-known verse, it says, therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. So last week we spent a lot of time discussing the idea of justification by faith alone. And the reason we do that is because these principles will come back over and over through the book of Romans. We need to know what they mean. So again, verse 22 speaks specifically to truth number four that we talked about. The righteousness that God has graciously provided becomes ours through simple faith. So when we claim that justification is by faith or through faith, depending on your translation, we have to be careful not to misunderstand what that means. To be justified by faith, remember justification, we defined that last week as a judicial declaration by God that we are just or righteous. That's justification. So to be justified by faith does not mean that we are justified because we have faith, as in that is the work that earns us justification. We possess it. The language here means that it is the means by which God justifies us. It is the means by which we lay hold of Christ it is the means by which the righteousness of Christ is bestowed upon us. You could say that it is the instrument by which one is linked to Christ and his righteousness. And I did a big study early in the week about causality and the various different causes of something happening. And it's a very interesting study to me at least. It was put forth by Aristotle and there's like eight different causes that he lists for events happening. And the last one he lists is what he calls the instrumental cause. And he uses the example of a sculptor taking a block of stone and making a statue out of it. And there's all kinds of causes from artistic vision to the need for it. We won't go into all that. It's very long and probably not interesting to anybody but a few. But the last one is instrumental cause. And the instrumental cause of that sculpture is the hammer and the chisel. That is what caused the block of stone to become a sculpture. And so you can understand that to only possess those things is of no value. It required utilizing them. And the same is true for faith. We don't we're not justified just because we claim to possess faith. We exercise it. We, as we'll learn in a moment, we put our trust 
and the living person of Jesus Christ. So to define faith further, I think we can use three words that are very common in church language, and we probably need to know what they mean. And those words are conversion, repentance, and faith. So let's look at those briefly. When we say conversion, we can define that as a willing response to the gospel. In which we do a couple of things. We repent of our sin and we place our trust in Christ for salvation. You can call that conversion. It is a willing response. When people talk about predestination and they get all bent out of shape, they talk about people being dragged, kicking and streaming, screaming into heaven. And that doesn't happen. Conversion is a willing turning. It is a willing response to the gospel. The word actually does mean turning. And here we're talking about a spiritual turn. A turn away from sin, we call that repentance. And a turn to Christ, which we call faith. But what does faith actually mean? I mean, we listed it a few weeks ago with all the other words that, you know, occupy our language when we talk about salvation. It's one we need to know the definition to. It's vitally important. We call people to faith in here. The Bible calls us to faith, so we should know what it means. And I think we can break it down this way without getting too complicated. It involves three things. Knowledge, approval, and personal trust. And you need all three. For example, knowledge in and of itself is not enough. We know from James chapter 2 that even the demons know and believe about God. But surely you don't believe they possess saving faith. So knowledge is not enough. But knowledge and approval alone are not enough. Approving with facts about God is not faith. You surely remember Nicodemus, right? The story of Nicodemus. This is in John chapter 3. Verse 2 says, This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you're a teacher from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. So Nicodemus had evaluated the facts of the situation. He was a smart man. He included in his evaluations Jesus' teachings and his miracles. And he drew the conclusion, the correct conclusion, that Jesus was in fact a teacher come from God. But this alone did not constitute saving faith. For he still had to put his trust in Christ for salvation. Then in Acts we read about Agrippa, King Agrippa. In Acts 26, Paul was on trial before King Agrippa. And this exchange happened. Acts 26, verse 27, Paul is speaking. And he says, King Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? I know that you believe. King Agrippa says this in the very next verse. In a short time, you would persuade me to be a Christian? So again, Agrippa knew and believed, but he did not have a saving faith. So in addition to knowledge and in addition to the facts and the approval on our part of these facts, 
In order to be saved, we have to put our trust or depend on Jesus as a living person to save me. We don't just think Jesus was a character that lived and died in the Bible and was a good teacher. We believe that he is alive and is able to save. We move from being an interested observer of the facts of salvation and the teachings of the Bible to someone who enters into a new relationship with Jesus Christ. So we can shortly, you know, sort of compactly define saving faith this way. Saving faith is trust in Jesus Christ as a living person for forgiveness of sins and for eternal life with God. That's sort of a rough draft definition. So back to our key terms and our principles. Number four says this righteousness that God has graciously provided becomes ours through simple faith. So, so to rephrase that, with all the definitions we've thrown together in the last couple of weeks, we could say the righteousness of Christ that God has legally transferred to our account becomes ours through the simple act of trusting and depending on the living Christ to forgive our sins, to save us from condemnation, and secure for us eternal life with God in heaven. That's the faith of verse 22. And there are, of course, many facets to faith. There are many things we could teach when it comes to faith. For example, there is such a thing as a false faith. John records this. These are the words of Jesus. In John chapter 8, verse 31, Jesus said to the Jews who had believed him, they believed him, if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples. So in other words, obedience to God's word is evidence of true faith. He says, you are truly my disciples. James had thoughts on this as well. As you know, James, he had lots of thoughts, didn't he? Chapter 2, verse 17, of course, says, So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. In other words, disobedient faith is illegitimate faith. And we could go on. There's lots of teachings about faith in the Bible. You know, false faith can be faith in your own good works. It can be faith in ritual or faith in religious experience or a system or faith in your own goodness. Simply some kind of mystical faith, you know, Oprah Winfrey, people of faith kind of thing. The definition that we gave earlier in verse 22 refers to faith in Jesus Christ. That's the only faith that matters. A person is saved through faith in Jesus Christ alone, apart from anything else. So we need to know, however, that faith is more than simply making a verbal declaration of believing God. A.W. Tozer, the late A.W. Tozer, was just brilliant. Here's what he writes, or wrote. Something has happened to the doctrine of justification. The faith of Paul and Luther was a revolutionary thing. It upset the whole life of the individual and made him into another person altogether. It laid hold on the life and brought it into obedience to Christ. 
It took up its cross and followed along after Jesus with no intention of going back. It said goodbye to its old friends, as certainly as Elijah when he stepped into the fiery chariot and went away in the whirlwind. It had a finality about it. It snapped shut on a man's heart like a trap. It captured the man and made him from that moment forward a happy servant of his Lord. You see, the faith in Jesus Christ here in Romans is much more than just an affirmation of certain truths about Jesus. That's the knowledge part. But faith is much more than that. Saving faith is placing all of oneself totally in submission to the Lord Jesus Christ. That's faith. So this righteousness of God comes to us through faith. In Jesus Christ. So we've studied so far, beginning with verse 21, that this righteousness of God is apart from the law. It's apart from legalism. It's built on the revelation of the law and the prophets. And here that it is received by faith. So let's look for a few moments at the last part of verse 22. Again, verse 22 says, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ. And it says, for all who believe... For there's no distinction. The provision of the righteousness of God and the salvation that it brings with it is granted to all who believe. Anyone will be saved who believes in Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior because he says there is no distinction. The scripture speaks like this in other places. Acts 13.39 says, And by him... Everyone who believes is freed from everything from which you could not be saved by the law of Moses. Galatians chapter 2 verse 16. Yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ, what we've already mentioned. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law because... As opposed to everyone who comes to faith in Christ, it says by works of the law, no one will be justified. So those who come through faith in Jesus Christ, all will be accepted. Those who try to come to Christ through works of the law, no one will be accepted. John 6, 37, Jesus says, all that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. So murderers, thieves, hypocrites, pagans, soccer fans, everyone else will be saved. I think soccer, I'm not sure about that, but most of the rest of them will be saved. Just as it's true that no one is good enough to be saved by their own merit, no one is so bad that they cannot be saved by the grace of God. That is the point of Romans 3.22. So now we come to verse 23. It's one that everyone has heard and many of you have memorized. It's one of those you just don't even need to open your Bible for. Romans 3.23, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. This is a summation of the argument for the necessity of the gospel. 
This tells us the necessity of God's plan for redemption. It's the condition for which the gospel is the remedy. This is the problem in one sentence. Everyone sins. Everyone falls short of the glory of God. Here we have this truth presented both positively and negatively. First, it says positively, everyone sins. Sinning is what everyone does. And then negatively, everyone falls short of the glory of God. Meeting the standard of the glory of God is what no one does. So here, when we see the glory of God, it seems to mean the approval or the commendation of God. John, as we're going to read in just a moment, contrasts this glory of God with the glory of men or the glory of the people around you. So let's look at a couple of verses and the Gospel of John, first chapter 5, verse 44 says, How can you believe when you receive glory from one another and do not seek the glory that comes from the only God? And then later in the same book, chapter 12, verse 43, For they loved the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. So Paul here says there is no distinction for we all have sinned. That's the end of verse 22 and the beginning of verse 23. You know, we're all very p different people in this room. We look different. We sound different. We have different jobs. We have different interests and hobbies and desires and dislikes. And while there may be some overlap in those things, the one thing we absolutely have in common, along with every other person who has ever lived except one, and in the same as every other person that will ever live, the thing we have in common is that we sin. Even in that, we may sin in different ways and with different regularity, but none of us is free from the taint of sin. This is what the gospel remedies. This is a problem that we all have and we need help. While this verse is very familiar, I think the gospel would be better understand if the fact of the universal nature of sin was more deeply felt. I don't really know how to describe that, but if if we thought less about the schemes that are out there today to increase our happiness by changing our image or increasing our wealth, adding to what we have, instead of focusing on those things, if we could focus on the remedy for the human misery that sin brings, and that remedy, the only cure for human misery, that remedy is the gospel because it cures the universal sinfulness of man. If we had deeper understanding of that universal sinfulness of man, perhaps we would value the gospel even more greatly. So verse 24 continues the thought. As you see, as we mentioned, it's all kind of one sentence, one big long thought that's run together. There's no period there between 23 and 24, or verse 22 for that matter. 
So we'll start with 23 and we'll read 23 and 24 together. It says, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. So here we go with some more key words that we probably need to know. We've already defined words like justification and faith. And in this verse, we go back to justification again, but we add the concepts of grace and redemption. I don't remember if those were on that slide with all the key words, but they should have been. But before we get to definitions, I want to put a common misinterpretation of this verse to rest because I hadn't really thought of it until I read it in this context of verse 22, 23, and 24. So just listen to this and tell me if this sounds right to you. And I'll tell you, I'm not changing any words in the verses. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift. Let me read it one more time and just think for a moment. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift. Did you, did you catch the confusion we could fall into? Did anyone get a vibe of universalism out of that? Let me read it again. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift. Are all justified? If I leave out some of the phrases, it sounds even stronger if I say all have sinned and are justified by his grace. What does that mean? So I didn't add any words. I took out the phrase and fall short of the glory of God and left off the phrase that says as a gift. What I want you to know is that Paul is not here saying that all sinners are being justified and therefore being saved. You can't leave off verse 22. God's righteousness extends to all who exercise the faith of verse 22. So we have to be careful when we pull these verses and yank them out of the context, especially when they're part of a sentence, especially when they're part of a sentence. But that's not what Paul's teaching. So if anyone ever comes to you with an argument for universalism, which means everyone will be saved in the end, and they use these verses. Now you know, direct them back one more verse to where they learn that it's by faith that all of this becomes possible. So anyway, back to our key words. What is this grace that Paul speaks of? I mean, most of us have heard a definition of grace or 10. There's lots of them from children's Sunday school definitions all the way up to you know, systematic theology definitions and everything in between. When I was young, it was explained to me in the form of an acrostic. How many have heard God's riches at Christ's expense? G-R-A-C-E. It's very well known. It's also been expressed positively as sinners receiving what they do not deserve. As opposed to the negative of correlation to that, which is mercy, which is sinners not receiving what they do deserve. And all those statements are true. I think for a summary for us this morning, we could say that grace is sinners receiving the undeserved kindness of God. The undeserved kindness of God. Now later, Paul is going to distinguish between grace 
and wages. He will give a contrast between the two because grace is undeserved and unearned. Wages, as you know, are earned. If you have a job, you don't get any wages if you don't work. Unless you're a legislator or something like that. (laughs) Most people do not get wages if they don't work. And where that comes into place is grace cannot be owed to you. Somebody will say that all of mankind deserves the grace of God. If grace is owed to you, it's not grace anymore. It's wages and you've done something to deserve it in their mind just existing. Paul emphasizes this without even saying it by pointing out that this grace is a gift. And that makes perfect sense, doesn't it? If it's when you receive something that you didn't earn and maybe even that you don't deserve, it's very commonly referred to as a gift. The last part of verse 24 says, through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Which brings us to our final term. Principle number three is where you'll find that term. And that term is redemption. So what is redemption? Well, it means different things, I imagine, to different generations. I'm old enough to remember sitting in my grandmother's living room and working on SNH green stamps. Does anyone remember those? We have to have a few people that remember those. Okay, good. I'm not the oldest person in the room, I don't think. When you went to the grocery store back when I, we're talking about when I was a child. I actually was a child one time. When we would go to the grocery store, United, and you would check out and the clerk would have to type in the number to correlate to the price of the product. There were no scanners. So checkout clerks had real skill on their machine of typing in the numbers really fast. And you hoped accurately. And at the end, you would, of course, pay them. You'd get your week's worth of groceries for $30 or $40. And then they would dial out through this little machine a bunch of stamps. They would come out in a big, long strip, depending on how much money you spend. They looked like little green postage stamps. And we would throw them in a bag, a grocery sack, until Grandma said, hey, it's time for us to, to work on these. And so we would go over to her house and sit in her living room, usually watching Hee Haw or the Lawrence Welk Show, depending on whether Grandma or Grandpa won the fight that night. And we would begin to paste these into these little paperback booklets. You'd get a wet sponge, a pack of the booklets, and your sack full of stamps. And you'd begin to paste them in there. And when you were done, you would look at the redemption booklet catalog and decide how many books you had and what you could buy with them. The store, which I think was down where uh, Frank and Joe's is now, off of Brook Street, somewhere down there. Uh, the big SNH Green Stamp store, they called it a redemption center. They didn't even call it a store. And I remember one time going down and getting a little wooden guitar, which was a huge mistake. It was cheap, of course. You're, you know, most of the stuff in there was. And I could make some noise, but it certainly wasn't music. Um, and then much later in my life, I would purchase with my own money a very expensive guitar and pay to take lessons, and the results were about the same. It was 
noise and not much music. And that guitar resides somewhere at my son's house unless he sold it and then somebody else has it. But that was my introduction to the concept of redemption. You take these stamps and you go down and you redeem a toy or a transistor radio or a guitar or whatever from the redemption center. The people in Paul's day knew what redemption was in a very different way. In the center of every Greek city, Greek cultural city, would be an agora, which was literally a place of redemption, a market. But in that market, it was not exclusively, but specifically a place where you could buy and sell slaves. Now, there are several Greek words that apply here. The Greek word for the act of redemption is agorazo. And you can see that, that agora is the root of that. Agora meaning the marketplace or the redemption center and agorazo meaning the act of redemption. But that's not the word used in this verse. There's a second word for redemption that a Greek reader of scripture would have understood and that's exagorazo. That word means the act of purchasing or redeeming never to return. You see, sometimes people would buy a slave for the planting season or for the harvesting season, and then they would take them back to the agora when they were done and sell them. But exagorazo was the antithesis to that practice. It meant the person who bought them bought them for their permanent possession. But that's not the word used in the verse either. Apolutrosis, which sounds like a medical condition to me, but it's not. Apolutrosis is the third Greek word for redemption, and it means someone going into that marketplace to purchase a slave for the purpose of setting him free completely. Never to be a slave again. That's the word that's used in this verse when it talks about the redemption of Christ. That's remarkable that someone would use their money to go purchase a slave. I wouldn't think they were cheap for the purpose of setting him free. Yes, for us, redemption is agarazzo. We are redeemed. And yes, it's ex agarazzo because we're redeemed never to be a slave again or, or redeemed permanently not to be sold again. But even more than that, it's a polyutrosis because we were purchased with the idea of never even being a slave, of being set free. Never sold again, always being free. And we know that how Jesus refers to us in John chapter 15, he says, no longer do I call you servants. But it says, I've called you friends. That's what it means to be redeemed. We are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. People, that is really, really good news. And let me tell you why. Christianity is not only the religion that we so desperately need, but it's also the only religion worth having in the long run. Let me tell you why. First, if salvation is by the gift of God, which we read today, apart from any human doing, then we can be saved now. 
Now, what do I mean by that? We don't have to wait until we reach some level of attainment or until we pass some undetermined future test to know that we're saved. Many people think in these terms, they know their lives are not right now what they should be. So they keep on striving and trying, hoping someday they'll be good enough and by the end when they die, it'll be good enough. But this means of salvation can never be present in our life. It's always in the future. It is something we have to attain and it's something we're afraid we may not attain. It's only in Christianity that this future element of salvation moves into the present. The reason for that is that our salvation is not based on what we might do, but on what God has already done through his son Jesus. When Jesus died on the cross, he said, it is finished. There was no more work to be done. There is nothing you can add to that. He finished and his finished work is the sole grounds for us being declared righteous by God. So salvation can be ours now. That's why Paul says in Romans 8, 1, there's therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And in 2 Corinthians 6, 2, he says, behold, now is the favorable time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. So our salvation can be now. The second reason this is the only religion worth having is if salvation is by a gift of God apart from human doing, then salvation is certain. Look, I've done enough things in my life, projects, tasks, that I know if my salvation can be achieved by human works, I can certainly mess it up. I can undo it no matter how detailed the instruction manual is or how clear the YouTube video is. I can, I can do it wrong. If I can save myself, then I can unsave myself. I can ruin everything. But if salvation is from God from beginning to end, it is sure and it is unwavering. And the reason is because God is sure and unwavering. Philippians 1.6 says, and I am sure of this, there's that certainty, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. Our salvation is certain. Finally, the last point, if salvation is a gift of God apart from human doing, then human boasting is excluded. And all the glory of salvation has to go to God. I don't know about you, but I don't know that a heaven being populated by people who got there by their own efforts would be that great of a place. I mean, the boasting of human beings on this earth is bad enough. I mean, we all boast about how we look, even though we have absolutely nothing to do with that. We boast about the possessions we have, our money, our job, our status. Whatever. 
Imagine how bad it would be if we were able to brag about having earned heaven. Can you hear it? Old Joe down there, you know, he's in the other place. He just didn't have what it takes, I suppose. He should have lived a good life like me. But it's not going to be like that. Salvation is a gift. It's receiving God's righteousness apart from the law and apart from human doing. It says, Paul wrote to the Ephesians, it's not a result of works so that no one may boast. No one in heaven will be praising men. In heaven, the glory will go to God only. The reformers coined the phrase, sole deo gloria. To God alone be the glory. Thank God it's that way. Let's pray together.